Hello, welcome to Adapt, the show about computing in new ways on the iPad. This is episode five. My name is Ryan Christoffel, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host Federico Vatici. How are you today, Federico? I am doing great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. I am continuing to adapt to <laughs> nice. the iPad OS changes <laughs> that we've been playing around with this summer, and. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun. It's it's always great the lead up to WWDC, waiting for Apple to spill the beans on what it's been working on all year, and and now you know you and I have been able to get to play with that for a month now, which is fun. Yeah, I'm in the process of writing my uh, review, which will include iOS and iPadOS, and I'm I'm now deep into the writing process. So uh, my days are. You know, uh, wake up, uh, spend some spend some time with my girlfriend, walk the dogs, and then just write for like six or seven consecutive hours. So, uh, and while preparing the shows, you know, all the podcasts and taking care of some other things. But uh, my time tracking these days has a lot of a uh, lot of hour, a lot of time going into the writing task. So anyway, among all of this, uh, you had a challenge uh, two weeks ago. I challenged you here as a so as a rec, as a recap for our listeners. Ryan had to find at least two apps on the App Store to perform OCR on large and here I qualified as large PDF documents on his iPad so that he could be able to search the contents of the OCR text and as a you know uh, for context, OCR is optical character recognition. It means to be able to find software that recognizes the text in a, in a PDF document, makes it searchable, allows you to select or share that text. And in looking at the notes that Ryan saved, I think he passed challenge. There's a few images here that look really impressive in terms of these large documents that he was able to scan. Uh, but Ryan, tell me, tell me the details of um, how this challenge went for you. Okay, so honestly, this challenge was harder for me than I thought it would be when you first gave it. Mm. Uh, like I said last episode when you gave the challenge, I said, you know, there are apps that can do this, right? And, you know, you said, oh, yeah, there are. And I, I was partly hoping that because you said that, that there would be all these articles um, from years of Mac Stories work where I could just kind of you know, piggyback off of the research that you've done in years past, uh, that that actually didn't help that much in this particular challenge. Why, why would I choose that kind of challenge if I had all the work cut out for you? I, I guess you, you wouldn't. So <laughs> I, I suppose I should have expected something hard. Yeah, so honestly, the main reason why this challenge was difficult is that I put a constraint on myself, which is that Ideally, I didn't want to spend any money, um, and I, I'll get into the reasons for that in a minute. It's not just, you know, I 100% I, I believe that great apps should be supported financially, that we got to help support those developers, they do great work, but I gave myself the constraint of not spending any money, which ruled out a lot of apps. Uh, I want to name just a couple that I found on the App Store that obviously I wasn't able to try, but based on... Uh, different reviews on the App Store. It seemed like they're good options if you do want to spend money up front. Uh, one is the app Prismo. Now, Federico, last episode, you mentioned Prismo Go, which mm -hmm. is an app that I've used in the past for scanning documents, and it will do OCR after you scan them. Yeah. Well, there's also an app from the same makers simply called Prismo, which is meant for taking existing documents and performing OCR on them. So that looked like a good option. Um, it's, a, it's a paid upfront app on the App Store for $9.99. Uh, so that's something that people could check out. Another one, which is a little higher on the price scale, uh, a listener, Corb, wrote in and recommended this app called KNFB Reader, which it's, it's designed mainly with an accessibility angle to it. And so the app comes with powerful tools for doing things like uh, text to braille uh, or text to speech. And it looks like a great app. It's got a lot of, you know, really positive reviews, but it is definitely a pro level app in terms of price. It's uh, $99.99, so $100 on the app store, which, 
you know, depending on how much you need OCR for different documents and uh, the different features that you need, uh, that could be a good option for you. There's definitely some apps out there that I could have gone with if I wanted to spend a little bit of money on it. But with trying to save my pennies um, and not invest in an app that I didn't know if it would do what I needed it to do or not, it was a little more challenging to find the apps that I needed. Uh, I did find two. Um, I searched the app store for PDF OCR, and I scrolled through a lot of search results. I actually reached the very end of the search results, which was surprising to me. Um, most of those apps were scanners, um, so kind of like Prismo Go, a scanning app. And actually, the two apps that I ended up finding to complete the challenge were scanners. They were just scanners that also had the ability to perform OCR on existing documents. Although the way that they let you do that uh, was kind of tricky, but I'll get into that in a second. Uh, so the two apps that I used were both free downloads. Um, they both have subscription plans. Mm, interesting. So it's not that they're free entirely, but they are subscription-based and they offer free trials. So I was able to use both apps in their full capacity to complete this challenge and see exactly how they worked. I think that when it comes to spending money on an app that um, is really productivity geared, uh, it's meant to do a specific task, I think that some of the ways that App Store economics have changed in recent years can be um, a positive thing mm -hmm. when it comes to finding the right app for you. Because back in the days when paid upfront apps dominated, it was really hard to know what you were getting before trying an app. You know, Apple, famously or infamously, you could say, uh, has not allowed paid upfront apps to offer trials. And certainly they could fix the problem by changing that policy. But as things are, uh, subscriptions are a great way for users to try an app see if it can do what they need it to do, and then pay what it's worth to them to have that task performed. Um, you know, other apps could do it potentially with, let's say, a free download, but then an in-app purchase that unlocks the full functionality. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of apps, uh, such as those from the Omni Group, that have moved to this model of free downloads. You get to try them, um, with all their features completely unlocked for a trial period, and then you have to pay a one-time in-app purchase. So that would be an option as well. Um, but for me, honestly, I just wasn't comfortable spending money on apps where, you know, a minute after paying $10 or $100 even, um, I, I might have been disappointed to find out that the app didn't do what I needed it to do. Mm. And so this, this is an area where I think subscriptions or even you know free downloads with in-app purchases can be helpful. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I honestly cannot remember the last time that I spent 10 or $20 on the App Store without having a free trial um, or at least a way to evaluate the, the, the features and, and the functionalities of an app beforehand. Um, and really, the, I guess this speaks to the, as you mentioned, just how much the app store has changed over the past few years, and especially since the launch of subscriptions, which I think, even though not all developers use subscriptions, I think they pushed other developers to change their mindset. And so if you look at folks like the Omni Group, for example, they do not enforce subscriptions, but the design they designed a trial system that allows you to test apps in full before committing to buying them. And, and I, I was recently playing around with um, Margin Note, which is a PDF research app. Uh, it's got version three. I was uh, I used to I owned version two, um, but I didn't have version three. And when I downloaded it, I noticed that there was a free trial, free fourteen days trial, um, which was awesome because I could evaluate the app while I was doing my research for iOS thirteen. And then when the trial was up, 
uh, the app became limited to just being a viewer. You couldn't make any more edits. But at that point, it was only natural for me to unlock the full version because I was able to fully evaluate the app before spending, you know, $20. And then I don't know if it's going to work for me or not. So this is a very good point that you raised in, in this challenge and it's sort of tangential to the topic of the challenge. But the idea of powerful software on iPad Pro and on the App Store I, I want to say that at this point, you, if you're a developer, you need to seriously consider offering a free trial because, you know, just the world has changed. And, and I think we've moved on from the days of if an app is $20 on the App Store, it is inherently good. That is not true anymore. You know, we, we see all these problems with scammy apps that ask you for money and then they don't do what they advertise. So if you're a developer of a serious pro, you know, pro app, uh, a full-featured piece of software, you need to seriously consider having a trial at this point. Yeah, agreed. All right, so let me get into the apps that I ended up using for my challenge. Uh, the first one is called Fine Scanner. Yeah, I know this one. So, oh, do you? Yes. Okay. Yes. So this one, uh, as far as the business model goes, it's interesting in that there's a subscription option, but you can also do a one-time in-app purchase to unlock the full app if you prefer that. Um, so I, I started using the app, and at first, it seemed like it wasn't going to work for me. Um, like I said, both of the apps that I picked are scanning apps, and in FindScanner's case, the app has an option to import photos from your photo library to have those scanned. Uh, scan so that you can recognize them using OCR. But there is no obvious way in the app to import PDFs or any other type of documents. And so I kind of thought I was out of luck there. Uh, this is a common trend in scanning apps. Lots of them will have their scanning functionality where you use the camera to scan a physical document, and then maybe they'll let you import photos, but that's about it. Well, fortunately for me, I discovered that in the app, there's kind of a document sidebar, and you can drop a PDF into that sidebar to have it imported into the app. And so, as far as I could tell, FindScanner offers no visual indication, no button, no anything to tell you that you can bring other types of files into the app besides photos, but it does work using drag and drop. And so I took a PDF from the Files app and dropped it into FindScanner, and it pulled it in just fine. So that was great. Uh, once you have the file that you need, um, there's a Recognize button. So you hit that to have it perform OCR. And there's two modes that you can choose from. So that was one really nice feature of FindScanner. There's a plain text mode, which uh, the app says that that is on-device quick text capture. Uh, so it's faster and it happens entirely on device. But then there's also this preserve original formatting option, which the app says that that is creating a document on the server. So if you choose preserve original formatting, um, it will upload the document to the server and then it'll kind of have a spinning progress bar where it takes a little while to get the finished um, file back to you depending on what format you chose. That's what I tested last year, um, the upload version. Okay. So it's nice that you can um, choose from a variety of file formats if you go the, the server route. So you can um, have the OCR create a new Word document. Uh, you can have it create an Excel document, rich text format document, um, a searchable PDF, and a few other things. Uh, and then you can also select a language. So you can actually choose up to three languages at once for the app to recognize in the PDF. So that was a nice touch. The test document that I used was 434 pages. Oh, wow. So you, I, I know you said to, to, to use large PDFs, um, and I, I used a large PDF. So it, is essentially a book, but in PDF form. Um, I did also try uh, a PDF version of your iOS 8 review. Um, I, I picked the iOS 8 review because back then you 
we're still putting your reviews on a single page. Oh God! Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I made a I made a PDF version of that, and that was only forty two pages. So you know it it wasn't quite long enough. I, I feel like you should start writing longer um, iOS reviews, Federico. Mm, but spoiler alert: go back in time <laughs> and you will see that. <laughs> so uh, I ran uh, Fine Scanner. Uh, using both the plain text mode and the preserve original formatting mode. The estimates that the app gives for how long it'll take to perform OCR on the document were pretty off. So like with plain text for the book length, 434 pages, it estimated it would take seven minutes, but it actually only took one minute, which was great. Um, so under promise over deliver there. So when the uh, operation is complete, then you will see a text preview, which gives you options to send the text, which opens the share sheet, uh, copy it or delete it. And so I used send, um, which the iOS share sheet clearly is not built for handling 434 pages worth of OCR text. Um, it was very laggy. And maybe that's just because I'm on the iPadOS beta, but uh, it, it struggled. And what I ended up doing is there is an action extension for the app drafts, which I don't believe this is actually in the public release yet, but uh, it's in the beta at the moment where with a single tap, you can send whatever the input to the share sheet is into drafts as a new draft. And so I did that. Um, I viewed it in drafts and it did pretty well. Um, the formatting was definitely off some uh the the plain text option is you know it, it's in the name it doesn't say preserve original formatting it's just mm -hmm. text so uh formatting wasn't great but overall it did a good job of getting the words right i did some comparison and um and it actually did a really good job uh and i as a side bonus i got to learn the exact word count uh of what was in the document and it was 148,472 words wow so Fine Scanner had a lot of work to do, and uh, it it did well. Yeah, I wonder if um, they're using the native um, iOS Vision APIs to do this kind of uh, local on device um, text recognition. Um, because the last time that I that I talked about this, I think it was launched with iOS 11. Um, probably, you know, it was probably in iOS 11, so in 2017. And what if if this is the case that they're using the native um, you know machine learning based uh, vision API, the, um, this is a one of the high performance um, developer frameworks that allows essentially iOS apps to interpret text or shapes or images or you know um, uh, all kinds of structured information in with incredibly high performance. So for example, the um, I, uh, to give an example here, the natural language processing, which is part of this framework, it was able to evaluate like um, 50,000 tokens in a second. And by token, Apple means uh, things like nouns or verbs or verbs or adjectives. And I think that the vision framework has a similar um, performance. To give you some context here, two years ago, I also ran uh, the vision framework against a PDF. And so on the 10.5 inch iPad Pro, I was able to recognize 50,000 words in a second and a half. Wow. Wouldn't surprise me. So that was two years ago. Wouldn't surprise me if the vision framework on the latest, um, on the latest devices has, has gotten so much better that you can recognize uh, three times that in a second. Uh, that's assuming the fine scanner is using this API, but it was you, you know to hear that kind of performance, you can only achieve that if you really tap into the CPU and, and the GPU of the system. So I would bet that fine scanner is using the vision framework and natural language processing to do that, which is super fun. Yeah, I was really impressed, um, and I mean that's one of my big takeaways from this whole experiment is is how impressive OCR is, especially when it works as fast as it does and as well as it does, which along those lines, uh, the preserve original formatting option was just, it, it just performed really well mm. um, beyond my expectations. So uh, again, the, the app estimated it would take a lot longer. It said it would be about an hour 
before I got the finished product. It actually took somewhere between five and 10 minutes. So that was great. I converted the PDF to a docx file for Microsoft Word, and then I actually opened it inside of Pages because I try not to use Microsoft Word. I'm not, not a big fan personally. I know some people like it, that's fine. But uh, I viewed it in Pages. Uh, the total page count once all this took place uh, and it was inside of Pages was 406. So it cut a few pages down. And the main reason for that seems to be that kind of the early parts of the book where let's say you've got things like the table of contents or you've got endorsements or other quotes or things like that. The formatting on that was off a bit. Um, it didn't look supernatural. But once you actually get into the main body of text, um, FineScanner did a really great job of, of taking this PDF and turning it into a Word document that just looks like it was you know, typed up um, as a new document with you know, great formatting to it. it mm-hmm. It's really impressive. Um, the, the spacing, the use of paragraphs, the use of even things like um, numbered lists or bulleted lists, yeah. where the book had that. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Very nice. Yeah. So uh, FineScanner did a great job, and I was just astounded, honestly, at uh, once you get into the main body of text, how it, it does not look like an OCR document. It just looks like, you know, a manuscript for a book. Yeah. And this, of course, means, though, that you got to upload the document to a server. So, um, I mean, because they're, if, they're using, um, if they're using cloud-based uh, OCR for the upload, um, which means that, you know, if you have the kind of confidential document that you don't, you, you can't for, I don't know, maybe your company, you know, does not allow you to share documents with a cloud-based service. Um, or if you have sensitive information in there, just be mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, your document is going off to a server outside of your device, uh, which I, I feel like it's something that we got to mention. Um, because, you know, when, when you run the OCR locally on your iPad or your iPhone, your information, the, the contents of the document never leave your device. But in this case, they actually go up to a server that performs the, the OCR and, you know, just, again, be mindful of what kind of policies they have, for example, for data retention on the server. And um, it's also why I, I'm always a bit skeptical myself, especially when I'm sharing documents for things like products that are not out yet. You know, maybe I get like a reviewer's guide or something that contains information about a product that I have to write about. But and maybe I want to perform more OCR on that document uh, because I want to be able to extract all of the text. But uh, I always get a little, you know, when I, when I need to upload it to a server. So I also tend to prefer local on-device OCR myself. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. But the results are impressive. The results are, I'll give you that, they are impressive. Yeah, so the second app that I used is the app ScanBot which if anyone's not familiar with it, ScanBot is an excellent app. It has a long history. Uh, it's now on version nine. Uh, it has long been one of the best scanning apps on iOS. It is similar to FineScanner in that uh, it's a subscription option. You can download it for free, but then there's certain features that are behind a subscription. Um, but also just like FineScanner, there's no way that I could find at least to import a PDF through the actual user interface, through a button, through an import you know, option, whatever, um, that didn't exist. But you can use drag and drop to drop a PDF into the sidebar where the other documents are, which is just funny. I, I don't understand. You know, I, I, I guess these apps aren't built to do OCR on PDFs, but the fact that they support that and yet that's not exposed anywhere in the UI was, was surprising to me, but I'm very thankful that it worked. Um, once I imported my PDF, the default view is just what the app calls the pages view, which just lets you, you know, cycle through the different pages of the PDF. But then if you hit the text option right next to that, which is near the top of the screen, then hitting that initiates the OCR. It, it's not like there's any options to it like there are in FineScanner. Um, and it doesn't even really tell you that it's doing OCR. I just kind of made that conclusion because I hit the text button and it took a minute or two before anything would load. And then when it loaded, 
I was able to see the full text extracted from the document. So uh, inside of ScanBot, um, it's, it's only plain text. You can't do any type of you know, preserve original formatting type option. But once you've performed OCR on the text, then you can share it elsewhere. Uh, you can search through it, which uh, with FineScanner, there's not actually an in-app option for searching, um, which, you know, it, it could be a problem for you if this is something you do all the time and you don't want to have to put it in another app first. But certainly like for me, when I uh, sent the data to pages, I was able to search it from there. But ScanBot does offer a native search feature, so you can do that with the OCR text. Uh, I'd say that the results were fairly similar to the plain text option in FineScanner. Uh, the formatting wasn't super great, but if you know your main purpose in doing OCR on this PDF is to search through it, maybe to find certain key terms, then ScanBot works just fine for that. Yeah, I'm looking at the screenshot. It looks very nice. I like that there's a and uh, just a search button in there. Honestly, it, like in 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 looking through these images, um, it feels to me as if Apple should just build this kind of feature into Quick Look uh, on iOS. Uh, I don't know if if this was among your your takeaways, but it really does feel like they have all the uh, pieces in, in in place on iOS to do this natively without having you without having you go to the App Store and download a third party app. Uh, they have natural language processing and vision to understand what is in a document. They have Quick Look, and, and one of you know fun fact about Quick Look, you can actually use it to open PDF documents and add some basic annotations to them. You can even highlight text inside of Quick Look without having to use a third-party app. Uh, you can do it all from the preview, and it looks great on the iPad because it's into full screen. It's comfortable to use. It feels to me as if there should be, you know, at this point, Quick Look is basically a lightweight version of Preview on the Mac. Why not just, you know, add all of these options that are already available to developers, but Apple is not using them themselves. So from OCR to search to, you know, navigating a table of contents, all that kind of stuff, it feels to me as if it should be part of the, of the built-in Quick Look Preview system. Yeah, and something that would be pretty powerful if Apple did build an OCR to Quick Look is you could tie that together with shortcuts oh, yes. and different different actions there. And uh, I I'm not sure honestly if either of these apps offers any shortcut support. Uh, that's something that I could have looked into, but but you know it'd be great, especially with all the changes that are coming to shortcuts in um, iPadOS 13 this fall. That, that could be a pretty powerful combination. Okay, so takeaways from this challenge. First, as I said, I am so glad that drag and drop exists. You know, before iOS 11 a couple of years ago, uh, I would have just been completely stuck and unable to get PDFs into these apps, which proved themselves extremely capable of doing what I wanted with the PDFs, which is running OCR. But for whatever reason, you, you can't do that. Um, both of these apps have plus buttons uh, as part of the UI of their kind of document screen, um, but it only works for bringing in photos. So uh, it's a little baffling, but I'm glad that Drag and Drop provided a, a powerful extra feature there. The other takeaway, which I alluded to earlier, is that you know doing OCR on especially big PDFs like this one, it, it honestly just feels like magic. I mean, to take something that's 434 pages, 148,000 words, and have the app extract all of that, in some cases in a matter of seconds or even minutes, if it's doing some you know, formatting work on the server, I mean, that's just incredible. One of the great things about the iPad, one of the things that I love about the iPad is that it's you know this slab of glass that has a million possibilities. You can do all kinds of things with it. And there's just something special in my mind about the power of OCR on large PDFs that the iPad just does with no problem whatsoever. It, it's really impressive. And it just shows how capable um, a computer the iPad is. But more than that, how how creative and um, empowering developers can be in building the tools 
that enable people to do things like this. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, um, app store business model, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, trials are really important, I think, for productivity tools. You know, if, if all the apps that we had for iPad tended to be, you know, games or video apps or just really light, um, let's say, companion versions of their uh, Mac, you know, heavy-duty productivity tools, then, you know, having apps that are lower-priced let's say 99 cents, 2.99, even 4.99 and having people pay that upfront price without being able to try it, that would be more understandable. And the App Store used to be more like that. Um but now that we have the iPad Pro, now that we have iPad OS, um and there continue to be more and more powerful iPad apps that have feature parity or very close to it to a Mac companion. Or maybe they just exist on the iPad and they're not even on the Mac, but they provide crucial utility, um, crucial tools that people need in their lives. Like these types of apps need to be higher priced because they take a whole lot more work on the part of developers. And when they're higher priced, that that barrier to entry is higher. And so, you know, expecting someone to pay and on up without trying something, that's just not realistic. And so developers considering ways that they can enable trials with the current systems that Apple has in place is going to be really important for making their apps more accessible to more users. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, Especially when it comes to, you know, we, we always wish for uh, the iPad Pro to have more kinds of Pro software. And I feel like unless developers really want to experiment with different pricing models that are not sort of stuck in the in the mindset of the 90s, you know, for the original shareware era of software, um, unless they, they, they can experiment with different things, whether it's subscriptions or, tri- or trials or in-app purchases, you know, whatever it is, they need to move on with the times and so it is reassuring to see some of them doing that. Um, but also I think there's a, there's a lot of work ahead for developers of Mac software who are now considering iPad versions, uh, especially now with iPadOS that you have you know, multiple windows and, and better shortcuts integration and external keyboards. But they cannot hope that just replicating the business model for the Mac is, is going to work because things, are, things have changed, whether you like it or not. And so I think you did an excellent job, Ryan, here with this challenge. And, and it was fascinating how uh, browsing the App Store for apps to solve the challenge led to this discussion about you know, pricing, pricing software and trials and having cloud-based features. I honestly was not expecting this kind of uh, theme to emerge from this challenge. But it's, uh, I guess it, it, it was an extremely fascinating conversation to have regarding you know, sort of the expectations that we have from professional software on the iPad and how those reflect the business model that we find on the App Store. So uh, you did a good job. And uh, yeah, good job. I'm, I'm very happy with this challenge. Um, you know, keep in mind all these compliments the next time you're setting a challenge to me. Uh, now. We have a topic for today. Of course, we are continuing our series on iPadOS and changes coming to uh, the next major version of iOS, which is going to have a different name on the iPad. And I thought that today we might want to talk about one of the big announcements of iPadOS, which is, of course, the new version of Safari that supports proper, actual, real desktop class web browsing on iPad. Um, I wrote about uh, Safari and iPadOS last month in an article on Mac Stories, and of course, it's gonna be this is gonna have a dedicated, in-depth uh, chapter in my iOS and iPadOS review. But as a, as a recap for the show, um, the main feature I think for iPad users in Safari is gonna be the fact that Safari will now work with desktop websites. Um, such as Google Docs or Squarespace or WordPress or, I mean, even Netflix and YouTube, but these media websites will work. Because one of the biggest complaints that a lot of iPad folks 
yeah, used to mention every time there was a you know a new version of iOS or a new iPad was the iPad is great, the hardware is great, but Safari is still a mobile browser. And so all these websites that I would need for work that I could use on an actual laptop, they don't work in Safari. And so not only has Apple heard these complaints, but the way that they have re-engineered WebKit, which is the engine underlying you know, Safari, um, it, it's really a, a testament to the kind of work that went into this new version of Safari, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest update to Safari since the original version, I think. So the I was able. I mean, I have the uh, I have iPad OS on my iPad. I've been using it since last month, and even since the first beta, it's such a night and day difference. Um, Safari on iPad OS, I can now use Google Docs, uh, which I use for show notes for my other podcasts in Safari, and it works just fine. Including the, for example, the custom text selection the Google Docs has or the custom keyboard shortcuts the Google Docs uses in, uh, in the web app, those all work in Safari. Uh, the WordPress system that we have for Mac Stories and other websites, it all works in proper desktop mode in Safari. And all of this was possible because of some really deep technical changes that Apple brought to WebKit. I mean, I don't want to get too technical here on the show, but uh, you have things like uh, a dynamic viewport, for example. That means that Safari, so the, the WebKit engine in Safari for the iPad uh, dynamically adjusts the websites so that they can fill the iPad screen. And of course, you have multiple iPad screen sizes, you know, going from 9.7 inches to the 12.9 inch iPad Pro. Um, and it, it adjusts the content, but it also keeps text legible. So it's, it strikes a very nice, ba- nice balance there, and it's a really difficult thing to do. And then you have things like pointer events, which is a web API that sort of abstracts the idea of interaction so that it supports both touch and an external pointing device. Uh, Now, the challenge there, of course, is to make sure that um, websites can support both tapping and clicking because once you advertise an iPad browser as a Mac browser, which is what Safari for iPad does, it advertises itself as Safari for Mac. But of course, the, the iPad still does not have an integrated touchpad does not have a cursor. So how do you reconcile touch input and websites that expect a scroll or a click? So Apple did a lot of work there to make sure that a tap would automatically translate to a click, but that could also support hover events. You know, on the desktop, you can hover with your mouse over a button or an element of a web page, and you can maybe reveal a menu. So of course, on iPad, you don't have the concept of, a, of hovering over you know, the screen, you can only touch the screen. And so there was a lot of work that went into reconciling all of these differences between a desktop browser and a touch browser. Uh, and then you have things like uh, media source extensions, which uh, is, a, is a, you know, another web API for apps like Netflix in the browser to be able to play video, for instance, which now works in Safari for iPadOS. And you have all kinds of other changes that, uh, you know, Hardware accelerated scrolling in every frame or every region of a web page, which makes, for example, using WordPress so much nicer. On on, on in the new Safari, you have custom keyboard shortcuts. You have this desktop mode that even works for third-party apps that have custom web views. It was really uh, this kind of monumental effort that is so much more than just changing the user agent from Safari for iPad to Safari for Mac. Um, and so, you know, I've been able to test this with, as I mentioned, Google Docs, but even web apps like Zapier, for example, which is the web automation service that I use um, before it was unusable in Safari for iPad. Now it just works. And it's, it, that, it's not like Safari is any more complicated than before. It still looks the, the same way that it used to look. It's not like you have this additional level of complexity, but it's just the engine is now the same as a desktop browser but it's optimized for the iPad. So that's really, really the main feature, and it's really impressive. And I wanted to ask you, Ryan, have you been able to tell sort of the difference in your workflow for websites that used to be kind of broken before and they're now working in Safari for iPadOS? Uh, so I, I've tried some that aren't necessarily websites that I go to regularly, but I wanted to test them out. So Google Docs is the first one because yeah, Apple actually called them out on stage and 
historically, Google Docs have not had the best iPad apps. Um, there are a number of different things that Google does in the apps that don't work well with kind of standard iOS conventions, uh, even for things like text selection. But then also the apps are very limited compared to the web version as far as um, certain features that they offer. And so I tried out Google Docs and was very pleasantly surprised at how well it works. Um, WordPress is one that I use every day because we use WordPress at Mac Stories. And it's nice to see, you know, the the areas that, for example, scrolling uh, the body of a draft article. Yes. Where before, and I feel like it got progressively worse over the years too. At one point it was a little bit better, but then in the last couple of years, it's gotten to where I... I avoided ever having to scroll through articles in Safari on my iPad or iPhone um, because it was just, it was really janky. It would, the the cursor when you're trying to navigate around would disappear sometimes, even though it was actually there. And it, it was just a bit of a mess. And that's all fixed now. Um, scrolling through the body of an article is extremely smooth. And that's great. YouTube is one that is especially pleasantly surprising. I, I didn't think that I had that much of an issue with the mobile version of YouTube before, but using the full desktop version is great. And you know, like you said, it, it, it's amazing how Apple's done all this work behind the scenes, but you're still using the same old Safari. You know, from a user standpoint, it's not like there's a whole lot that's different when you open up the app, but Websites work the way that they should work now, which is fantastic. Um, then, of course, you have all these other features that, in addition to making an actual <laughs> desktop browser work on the iPad, you also have on the iPad and on the iPhone as well. So, for example, you have a download manager now that's built right into Safari. And it's not just that you can download files. You can actually, finally, you can tap a link to a download to a downloadable file, and it goes into its own little window. That works, but also you can go into settings, for example, and change the default download location from iCloud Drive to local storage or even a third-party document provider. So let's say that, for example, you want to save uh, your downloads automatically into the working copy download you know, repository for something. That works. So that's really quite impressive. Have you... Have, have you downloaded, you know, all these PDFs that you've been using, Ryan? Did you download them using the iPad? I don't think that I used, I don't think I downloaded them through Safari. Mm. There's a few areas where I've needed to download something that wasn't previously possible. And it's a lot easier um, than it used to be because, you know, maybe you had to use a shortcut for downloading a file, um, maybe copy the link to the file and then run the shortcut. And it is just, it was, it, it worked, but. It was a workaround that shouldn't have had to exist. But the main area that I've been benefiting from uh, Safari's improved support for downloads is with certain types of files that technically you could download before, but the process for doing that was just not as smooth, not as simple. Uh, So for example, if I were downloading um, a zip archive, uh, one example that you know, I have to do regularly is Apple publishes press releases for different things. Um, just the other day, they announced some new um, MacBook Pros, MacBook Air, and uh, on their newsroom website, they always publish collections of images that you can download, uh, which you know I take and use in articles on Mac Stories. And in the past, you know, I'd hit that download button, and it would pull up that you know, that full screen view where it will suggest an app to open that file in. And uh, the other option is to use a share sheet. And you kind of got a couple of steps that you have to go through related to that. Uh, And if it's a larger file, you have to sit there and wait for it to finish because it's basically loading a new web page. It's kind of strange. Now I tap the download button and it goes up into the corner uh, to the download manager, just like on the Mac. And, you know, I can go about my business, going to other websites, doing whatever I need to do. But then when I'm ready for that file, uh, I can tap it in the download manager and it'll take me straight to it inside files. Yep. And it's exactly where I want it to be. So it's just a much simpler process. I, I think especially for people who maybe are newer to the idea of using the iPad as their primary computer, it just works the way that people are used to. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, the download manager, it even works in the background. So not only if you switch Safari websites in Safari, but even if you, um, uh, if you swipe up and go back home and leave Safari running in the background, the download will keep working. So there has to be like a special exception, I guess, that Apple is making for Safari in terms of memory allocation in iPadOS and iOS. But yeah, it'll keep working in the background and it'll complete your download. Uh, so that, that's really impressive. Um, there are some other features that I want to mention. I mean, of course, you got multi-window support on iPad. This was possible before with Safari's own split view mode. But now, of course, you can actually open multiple Safari windows. You can keep different web pages open in slide over, or you can keep multiple full screen windows, or you can have multiple spaces with split view and Safari on one, on one side of them. And one thing that you couldn't do before with Safari split view is that you can have one of the websites be the larger view. So it takes up two thirds of the screen while the other one takes up a smaller portion. Um, before with Safari's split view feature, you, you had to split the screen evenly down the middle. And, and now that's, you know, that's changed. Yeah. You got these new, all these new keyboard shortcuts. There's over, I think over 30 new keyboard shortcuts. Um, two of them that I want to call out are command one to nine uh, to switch between tabs and also command S will uh, save uh, the web page that you're currently viewing as a .webarchive document in that you can save in the files app. And the webarchive do- document type is, uh, you know, this is, must be well known to longtime Mac users. It's an offline copy of the full web page you're looking at that includes formatting, that includes CSS. Of course, it does not include JavaScript, which is executed in the browser, but it's a great way to archive an article or a recipe or whatever it is that you want to keep as an offline copy that is not just the text, but is an actual copy of the web page. Uh, web archives are great for research, personally speaking, and they are now natively supported in the Files app, for example, for Quick Look. So you can preview them directly inside of uh, the Files app. And there's also third-party apps like Keep It that support the web archive format. Um, there's a new view menu uh, that is uh, indicated with the AA button in the Safari address bar. Uh, the, the menu now contains a bunch of options. So this is where you can manage, for example, per website settings. And those include things like content blockers or automatic reader mode or uh, camera and microphone access or loading the desktop or mobile version of a website. Uh, the view menu is also where you can enable Safari Reader. Um, actually, this is a very nice detail. Um, the, this new icon, the double uh, letter A button, it takes over the previous uh, Safari Reader icon on the left side of the address bar. But when you're loading an article in the new Safari, it'll briefly flash the Safari Reader icon in the same position. And if you tap while the Safari Reader uh, icon is shown, it'll load Safari Reader. Otherwise, the icon will become the view menu icon but you can always long press the icon and it'll automatically uh, display reader view. So there's a few gestures in here and a few design details worth keeping in mind. And again, this menu is also where you can manage website settings. You can also manage website settings in the settings app. So there's a few ways that you can tweak. I don't know, maybe you want to see your bank's website in mobile mode. I don't know why you would want to do that, but you can have different options for different websites. you mentioned keyboard shortcuts, there's a new start page, uh, which includes, you know, it's got a new and bigger view for your favorites. And it now also includes uh, series suggestions, which are based on uh, links that you've received in the messages app, for example, or links from reading list, or even links from your iCloud tabs. So tabs open on other devices that are signed into the same iCloud account. Uh, You can actually long press on these series suggestions to decide to open a link in a new tab or in the background or stop suggesting suggesting that website if you maybe have a suggestion from a website that you never want to see in there. Or you can also sort of train the system and say suggest less from messages, for example. So if you want to see fewer suggestions from messages and more from leading lists, you can sort of train the system to show you the type of content that you're looking for. Speaking of and, and this is the last detail that I wanted to mention. Speaking of long pressing things um, in Safari, you can now long press on the iPad a tab or on the iPhone. If you can put your iPhone in landscape mode, 
you can open the tab overview, you know, the, the grid of all your open tabs and long press there. But in any case, if you long press a tab, you will get a new menu. It's a new con context menu, which is one of the new design elements of iOS 13 and iPadOS that has four options. You can reorder all your tabs by name or by website. You can also copy the, the tab you're, you've selected, and you can also close all the other tabs except for the one that you've selected. So it's very nice if, you, if you're doing research on the iPad and you want to quickly arrange all of the tabs that you've opened, you, can now, you, now have two, you now have two ways to arrange them. Once you have a set of tabs that you think will be useful for research purposes, you can now long press on the bookmarks icon and you will have a new option that was not there in iOS 12 to add bookmarks for all of the tabs that you currently have open. And of course, you can save these tabs in a folder. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can organize them however you want. And finally, if you have a set of bookmarks, now that you've saved all your tabs, you now have a set of bookmarks that you want to quickly reopen. Well, in Safari for iOS 13, you can long press on a bookmark folder and you have options to copy the contents, which I guess is going to be the links to, of all the tabs, or open all the bookmarked websites in new tabs. So again, if you do research or if you have a folder of, I don't know, uh, all the websites that you like to see in the morning or stuff like that for your news morning news routine, you can now long press on a folder, open them all in tabs, arrange them, save them again, do whatever you want. It's really nice. I mean... The Safari team could have easily stopped at saying, well, we've made desktop class mode and yeah, a download manager. But they actually went far beyond what I was expecting. You have all these keyboard shortcuts. You have all these gestures for uh, managing and arranging tabs and bookmarks. You have multi-window on iPad. You have all these little details in settings. You have per website settings. It is really a fantastic update. And during the beta cycle, they keep adding more features. I don't know how these folks do it, but for example, the, the, the options for long pressing tabs, that was added in beta three. So uh, really, and, and I speak for, from personal experience here, one of the best teams at Apple uh, and, and really br brilliant app. Uh, you know, I've always been a fan of the Safari browser on iOS, but with this update, especially for iPad, they're really going far beyond my, my, my wildest expectations. So I really, I'm really uh, excited about this one. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those updates that will allow a lot more people who haven't used the iPad as their main computer to do so. Because even just in talking to friends who uh, aren't necessarily big tech people, but they saw that there's an iPad OS coming and they're like, oh, well, you know, one of the problems that I have in using the iPad is I try to visit this website and it doesn't work because it's just the mobile version and I can't do what I need to do on it. And so I, I think, you know, the changes Apple has made under the hood to make Safari run as a true desktop class browser, combined with all these other power features, is going to make for a really exciting update. Yeah. All right. So um, do you want to go through some hashtag ask adapt questions? Yeah, let's do it. I think we got time for just a couple here. So... The first question comes from listener Ralph. Um, he says, do you think we will see larger iPads for designers using the floating keyboard and possibilities for indirect control? Uh, he mentions how, you know, touch only doesn't work so well for large screens. Uh, so what do you think about this, Federico? Well, I think it makes sense not just for designers, really. I've been, I've been arguing for a while and even in conversations with, with, with you know, folks at Apple, I keep bringing this up, that um, an even bigger iPad Pro is what I would love to see in the future of the iPad, you know, make it 15 or 16 inches. Now, of course, there's an argument to be made for how the iPad was intended as, first and foremost, a, a portable device. But I think over the years, uh, you've seen sort of two things happen. Uh, first of all, people carry around 15 or 16-inch laptops so it's not uncommon for a portable computer to have that type of display footprint. And also the iPad Pro, especially when you consider how it supports external keyboards and external monitors, you see people, including myself, for example, using an iPad Pro at a desk. And so you have this 
this scenario where you have iPad users who are iPad first users, and you know they're the reason why we're doing this show. Uh, that have, for example, a portable iPad and a desk iPad. That's what I do with my 11-inch iPad Pro, which is my portable iPad that I use for reading or just for, you know, if I need something super light to carry around, that's what I will take with the smart keyboard. And you have the, and I have the desk iPad, which is my 12.9-inch iPad Pro that I connect to a monitor or that I use with a vertical stand or that I use with my bridge keyboard when I'm at home. And that allows me to have, a, a, you know, uh, an, an array of different configurations and different setups. And so I would absolutely consider switching that 12.9-inch iPad Pro to a 14 or 15 or 16-inch iPad Pro, uh, or perhaps even bigger. Even, you know, I was you know, recently at London Heathrow, and there's an electronics store there called, I think, Dixon's, and they had this demo unit for the Microsoft Surface Studio. You know, the sort of the iMac that is also a touch computer that sort of uh, has a hinge that allows you to use it as a large touch surface. And if you disregard the fact that it runs Windows, and I fundamentally do not like Windows, it was an impressive piece of hardware. I would love to have, you know, <laughs> an iPad table, sort of an iPad, you know, drafting table workstation type of deal that is like a 30-inch or 40 or 50-inch iPad that that occupies an entire table or an entire desk and allows me to manipulate the UI on screen using multi-touch. That would be glorious. But, you know, looking ahead at the near future, I think it will make sense for Apple to offer a range of iPad Pro sizes that go beyond 12.9 inches. I don't think just for designers. And once they do that, of course, it becomes obvious to go beyond what they're doing in terms of external device integration. And that means having pointing devices that are not based on an accessibility feature, but that are actually based on a real pointing device framework for developers to use. Uh, Or it means having proper this external display management so that you can choose where to put apps on an external display so that you can have an external display that works in, that works in portrait mode, or you know, so that you can choose where to open your windows. Um, you know, none of this is currently possible with external displays on iPad, uh, which you know it can only mirror the UI of the system back to the external display. So I absolutely think there should be bigger iPads, and I would be surprised if a bigger iPad Pro and of course more expensive iPad Pro is not in Apple's future. I don't know how close that future may be. I would love to have a 15 or 16 inch iPad Pro in 2020. So that's my hope. I, I, I want it to go even bigger. I wouldn't say that Apple is gonna release you know, uh, their answer to the Surface Studio anytime soon, but it's fun to think about. So now question for you, Ryan, comes from listener Matt. And he wants to know, um, since adding third-party keyboards to your challenge, can you think of more apps that should implement a custom keyboard but that haven't yet? I feel like keyboard integration might be underused by developers. That's a good question. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I had to give this one a little thought because on the one hand, you know, one of the big advantages of a custom keyboard is that it is available inside any app you're using where there's text input required. And so, you know, when you were doing your challenge talking about Yoink, it's really convenient to have Yoink right there available no matter where you are so that you can pull out different text snippets or images, files, whatever you need. And so from that standpoint, I could see more apps adding custom keyboards and it being a useful thing, um, I think, especially of file-based apps. So, I mean, the Files app itself would be a good example. It, if you could somehow make the Files app into a custom keyboard so that you can browse your files from iCloud Drive, from Dropbox, any other you know, file providers, it would be useful because it, it'd be right there close at hand. Uh, honestly, though, I don't, know that, I don't know that that would be the best way to do it. Uh, I like the idea of having things like files um, right there available no matter what app you're in. But 
I don't think that a custom keyboard is necessarily the way to go about that. Uh, I, you could get pretty crazy with, you know, different custom keyboards for apps that really have nothing to do with text or even have nothing to do with uh, files, images. But it feels like maybe there's some other mechanism of iPad OS uh, that Apple could implement that would kind of serve to provide easy access to different documents or just some new system for cross-app sharing of text, of files, of other things. Uh, I, I don't think that custom keyboards is necessarily the way to do that. I mean, it, it's the option that's available now. So certainly if a developer feels like their app would benefit from being made available inside all these other apps conveniently, such as their keyboard, then that's great. But it, it feels like there's something else that Apple could potentially develop that would make it even easier to have quick access to uh, all the different content you want. And, you know, having an improved slide over like Apple's introducing in iPadOS 13 is great because, you know, you can have as many apps as you want available in slide over. And that kind of does it a little bit. But uh, I feel like there's more that can be done there. Yeah, I keep saying that. Shortcuts keyboard is what I want. So, uh, you know, or a clipboard manager from Apple that has some kind of keyboard integration, but, you know, one can dream. And in any case, uh, that's it for hashtag ask adapt in this episode. As a kind reminder for our listeners, you can always ask us questions using the hashtag ask adapt on Twitter. We will do our best. We will consider them all. We will look at them all and we will do our best to answer them on the show. And I think this is pretty much it for episode five of Adapt, Ryan. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You don't have a challenge yet, do you? Oh, no, I, oh, I tried. I was hoping that you forget. <laughs> oh. oh, well, what, what would we do for our next episode? I, and what would you do for the next two weeks? I mean, you've got to have something to do. So I have a challenge for you that <laughs> uh, if you were not on iPadOS, this challenge would be extremely cruel. The, the fact that I saved this challenge until iPadOS came out just shows, you know, my kindness of heart, I think. But See, the, the show began like one week before WWDC. Like, it's not this, this kind gesture from you. <laughs> it's, okay, well. Okay, sure, let's hear so, it. So here, here's the challenge. I want you to go a whole day using your iPad without touching its display never never oh. so i a couple episodes ago uh if listeners remember i used voice control which is a new accessibility feature in ipad os for controlling the entire system using your voice i do not recommend that you use that mm. but using a keyboard and using let's say a connected mouse would be a way for you to use your iPad and I think do everything that you need to do with it without touching the display. What do you think? I will say, I will say that this sounds fun, but there has to be an exception for me in the case that Face ID gets stuck and requires my passcode. Will the Bluetooth keyboard work? I guess it should work, or the smart keyboard should... Ke yeah, the smart keyboard will keep working. Yeah, the, the, the keyboard works for entering your passcode. So, yeah. Um, th uh, yeah, there shouldn't be any instance of touch being required. So I think it should be doable. It is extremely mean as a challenge for somebody who's writing a review of iPadOS to tell them not to use the display at all for a whole day, but it's also a fun one. Um, I have a mouse that I can test. I have a bunch of keyboards, as you can probably imagine. Um, all right. Yeah, I can do it for one day, though, not for more. One day. So one day, you mean 24 hours or like... I, I, I mean, what, from when you, when you wake up to when you go to sleep. Okay. See, that's... Yeah, that's, that's, some, that's better. Okay. Thank you for getting technical. I know mm -hmm. that you are very specific when it comes to rules on podcasts rules oriented all right well i can't wait to hear how it goes because you know obviously the ipad was made for touch input and you know now in ipad os you can use a mouse but it's the the system isn't designed for that primarily so i think it'll be an interesting experiment i'm curious to hear how it goes 
All right. Well, this has been episode five of Adapt. Uh, if you want to find show notes for this episode, which include all the apps that we mentioned today, uh, you can find them on our website, relay.fm slash adapt slash five, or just look in the podcast app that you're listening to right now. Uh, if you want to follow us online, Federico's on Instagram and Twitter as at Vitici. That's V-I-T-I-C-C-I. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at IRyan, T-L-D-R. That's I-R-Y-A-N, T-L-D-R. And we are both writing at MacStories.net. Until next time, Federico, say goodbye. Arrivederci. Bye.